Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, do you think women have a strange effect on men? (laughs) Yes, I do. You do? (laughs) I do, yes. They seem to have a very odd effect on men. Okay, sorry, let me rephrase. (laughs) What sort of strange effect do you think women have on men? They seem to drive them a little bit nuts. They start acting in weird ways. You, okay, so do you think that strange effect is just a brand new modern phenomenon, or do you think this is potentially something that's been Probably passed down? Probably one as old as time, one might say. Well, at least as old as 1780, well, yes. it would appear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of the, probably the funniest scene in the movie, eh? The, yeah. The movie we're doing today, The Patriot. Uh, it doesn't a, have a lot of funny scenes. No, it's not exactly a comedy. <laughs> but uh, that little playful conversation between Gabriel and Ben, uh, Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger is pretty funny. Hey? Yes, very good. <laughs> it is funny, too, because just that scene, they're like sitting on this beach, eating an apple, and they're kind of like, they're not saying very much. But there's so much of that <laughs> father and son yeah. mirroring of one like, another. S- so much of the communication is nonverbal in between the lines yes. and subtextual and in their little grins at each other. And I love that stuff. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> such Very a funny good. line with such a warm back and forth between a father and a son, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Before everything goes to shit. Yeah, so today we're doing the 2000, I think it's 2000 film. Didn't research, but I remember it coming out in that year, I think. The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson, Heath Ledger, Jason Isaacs, who I think is just incredible in one this of, movie. One of Heath Ledger's breakout roles, maybe. Was his breakout uh, A Knight's Tale? Was that his breakout uh, role? I don't remember. I think A Knight's Tale was 2001. So this movie would have been a year before that. Okay. And then, like, breakout, he was also in um, 10 Things I Hate About You, which I think was in the 90s. Okay. I can't remember. And he wasn't, like, the star of that movie. But he but was, he was in a, that movie, yeah, yeah, and he was, like, the bad boy. So he Right, uh, right. Yeah. And I just find Jason Isaacs, he's like the best soldier. Like, he's the best actor to be a soldier. He's in Black Hawk Down. Yes. He's in, um, there's a movie about a couple years ago called The Death of Stalin, and he plays General Zhukov. <laughs> so he plays and this he really Russian gets general. into the role. Oh, he's and just, so good. Uh, he's yeah. like the ultimate. And actually, we I was just, the other night, um, the Brad Pitt film Fury was on TV, and he has a small kind of role as Brad Pitt's commanding officer giving him his orders right and it's right. just like I, I i find him to be oh and he was um i totally didn't think about this but it makes total sense he plays lucius malfoy in the harry potter series true, so he's draco's true. dad yeah and so he and 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 of all of his roles though this one is the most brutal he's so brutally excellent or excellently brutal or whatever in this film right yeah he's a he's a very good uh archetype of the you know the ruthless oh my god evil yeah but but not in a caricatured way no. like i believe him like, this like is i really why he is we know why he is the yeah. way he is because he's 
He's very ambitious and he's trying to, mm-hmm. to you know, build himself back up. And he's kind of like willing to do all the dirty work yeah. for the British Army. Yeah. And then there's Tom Wilkinson who plays the general, Cornwallis, who's funny in his own way, I guess, too, in this movie. Jolie Richardson plays the aunt, Aunt Charlotte. And then there's a lot of other actors who I kind of recognize or have seen before, can't place their names exactly in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Roland Emmerich directed it. Not sure who wrote it. Do you remember the first time you saw The Patriot? I remember the first time it was watched in my presence and getting to see a few moments of it. And that oh, was when it was at Cannon Beach. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, sure. I think it was the first time you saw it, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. But Joelle and I uh, were not allowed because we were too young. Because oh, we would have been uh, 11 or right. maybe 12 at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was just before my dad uh, was letting me watch more, well, War adult themed ad- adult themed movies. So Joelle and I try to sneak down and watch it from the mm. stairs. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, because there was this because the TV was kind of at the bottom yeah, of the yeah, stairs, yeah, yeah. and if you kind of quietly opened the the lid, the yeah, lid to, yeah. <laughs> to the attic, then you could see it. And so we tried <laughs> to do that, but uh, did it work? I think it didn't work. But you know so that, that wasn't the, that's the first memory I have of that film, and that I I do remember watching it, and, and like as you know, as a little boy, like mm-hmm. the, all the war and the courage and the bravery was <laughs> right. the same with Gladiator. <laughs> I think the probably the, the movies that played the biggest role for was The Patriot. Uh, I mean, even the the moment like, where he's using the tomahawk, and you just mm. you feel I don't know. There's a I don't know if it's a little boy thing or what it is, but there's a an element of just feeling so much admiration for um mm. for controlled violence right. yeah. or not even necessarily controlled violence but being skilled in violence yeah. for some reason you would because i think it, it's just an innate desire to be able to be tough and to mm. be skilled and, and well and skilled in violence but so like reluctant to go do it yeah but then once you do it just like going all in and just courage right so i mean there's obviously this and then there's braveheart and then there's gladiator (laughs) yeah we made that joke about mel gibson is that he's really good at fighting english english soldiers (laughs) (laughs) exactly so that was my that's my first memory of it and then i don't remember the first time i watched it but that's my i think Mm. that's my memory of maybe i did maybe i was allowed to watch it and joelle wasn't well, she's she's like six months older than you, yeah, so I don't, I don't know, know why that would be the case. I don't know what case. it was, but I remember that was my first interaction with it. Uh, okay, interesting. Or maybe Christy and Philip weren't allowed to watch it. Yeah, maybe they were the ones that were upstairs. Yeah, they, this was, a, and this they was, probably would have been the ones who really wanted. This to watch was like it. yeah, nineteen years ago, right? So wow, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's crazy to think about. Yeah, I guess that would have been the first time I watched it too. Your your little story about sneaking in to watch. Patriot reminds me of, well, actually, probably several stories of my youth, but um, (laughs) the one that came to mind was the first time I ever watched Forrest Gump. I was probably about 10, and I was allowed to watch Forrest Gump except all of the sex parts. Right. So, like, basically, every 25 minutes, I had to go upstairs for a certain amount of time, (laughs) and then I'd get to come back down. So, I was like, oh, (laughs) it was just like, and I didn't. It was funny because, like, I didn't know exactly why I had to go because even at age 10, I was still pretty innocent and yes. my parents didn't really talk to me about that kind of stuff. So I was like, they would just be like, it's bad parts. I'm like, what? <laughs> this <laughs> movie doesn't seem like it has why bad Why do you parts? get to watch the bad parts? <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I relate to the... Uh, 
Well, there's a little sneaking. bit of an excitement about wanting. Well, to and, do a, these and a more um, a more actual like confession is that there would always be late night movies on CBC, and when we had two channels, I'd always sneak out of bed and watch the late night movies. <laughs> oh, what was the what was the best late? Night I don't movie? even remember. Oh, there were like just... these obscure. I I think for a while there was. I mean, okay, we're talking like pre internet streaming for sure here. Mm-hmm. I think I remember watching Ice Station Zebra which is like a movie about, I think it's the South Pole, like a a submarine or a base on the South Pole. It was made in like the 60s. So it's like a classic (laughs) film. Right. Probably a Hitchcock film too. Like I think I remember watching maybe Rear Window or something like that. Wow. It was more that just was like, I was going to be damned if I wasn't going to figure out a way to watch 14A movies. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to figure it out. I was 14. I could watch those. I'm going to watch those. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Patriot, yeah, probably Cannon Beach then, that era. That's funny how movies can remind you of an era yeah. of life, hey? And this yeah. movie, even just the feel of it is very era-reminding. There's something, yeah, crazy about that time period from, I don't know, 10 to 16, mm. before you get your driver's license, yeah. right, where there's so much pent-up potential and hormones and right. life and excitement and... well. And, and you're becoming an a, 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 like a full-grown human, but you're nowhere close to mentally or emotionally prepared. Well, yeah. Well, and that was like an era, too, where Hollywood was starting to make these sweeping epics, right? And like, Yeah. Well, the Passion it, of the Christ came out in that time period, too. Well, that came out in 2004. Which is that 10, yeah. for me, that Yeah, that's right, 16. that's right. But I'm thinking, like, too, also, like, Armageddon yep. in 98, and, you know, The Patriot, Gladiator was in yes. 2000, uh, Lord of the Rings was 2001. Yeah, so all so, of those. So, like, these just kind of, like... The Matrix, Yeah, the Matrix. Degree. So, yeah, these kind of... The sweeping epic uh, was in vogue yeah. in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? And we got some really good, just fun, good movies out of it. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, ones that, to you and me, will be the classics, because yeah, they the came one, out when we yeah, were teenagers. Yeah, the ones teenagers. we remember, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, for those of you who haven't seen The Patriot, it's set during the American Revolutionary War. The beginning of the movie, it says it's in 1776, so like right when the Declaration of Independence would have been passed, and then voting on the different colonies to join in to help in the war kind of thing. And Mel Gibson plays Benjamin Martin, who's our main character, and they live in like a plantation in South Carolina. And at the beginning, he is not going to (laughs) vote like he wants to stay out of the war basically he's not a pacifist but he's trying to not be like he's experienced violence before i guess was the french indian wars he was a part of right and there was one scene where he's explaining to gabriel his son what was happening in those wars and why it was so brutal and that was (laughs) a scene where my sister Joelle was in the room talking to us, so I kind of missed yeah. <laughs> the specifics of the scene. That's right? true. But I think he said something like he killed a lot of French people to because they had raped and yeah kind to of to like built murdered women and children. Right, right. Which was the irony now that he was getting so much help from the French. Yes, to yeah. fight against the British <laughs> in the Revolutionary War. Anyway, so Ben has built this reputation, and then it's not exactly clear, but I think the majority of the movie takes place more around like the 1780 year mark and the timeline is like not very uh, yeah that would be a weakness of the film is you're not exactly sure like there's one date stamp at the beginning of the movie that says 1776 south carolina yeah. and then at the very end of the movie there's another date stamp that says yorktown 
1781, which is kind of like the battle that Cornwallis lost in history. That's kind of generally considered the death blow to the British forces in the Revolutionary War, even though the war didn't end for a couple more years. And so it, it I don't know, like I, I read, I think it was, so I read on Wikipedia, it was in 1780 that the British took over Charleston, South Carolina, right? which makes kind of a big part of the first act of the movie is the British coming and taking over. So I'm going to just assume that there's like a four year passage of time right. in the movie that which they don't, don't really like don't children really don't age. <laughs> yeah. And... The kids don't look four years older, do they? <laughs> no, no, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Minor detail. We'll let it be. What it so is. anyway, early in the movie, Ben's son, Gabriel, who's played by Heath Ledger joins the revolutionary forces. His, his second the continental army, as they call it. Oh themselves. yes. Continental army. His second son, Thomas wants to join. Gabriel comes back. There's a whole like bunch of refugees and rebels being helped at their house including Gabriel, who has like a dispatch for the army. The British show up. Tavington, William Tavington, played by Jason Isaacs, who's the brutal, sadistic, uh, I think he's a corporal or lieutenant, middle middle management maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in the British army. And he, through confluence of events, he ends up killing Thomas, the second oldest son, and then saying that Gabriel, because he's a spy, he will hang. So then... Benjamin and his two next two youngest sons, Nathan and Samuel, or Nathaniel and Samuel, attack. <laughs> the, the There's about like 15 soldiers transporting Gabriel, and they rescue him. But in the meantime, Mel Gibson, Ben, brutally murders a couple of the people with tomahawks. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's like his sons are starting to see him be that way. And then through most of the movie, he starts up and heads up uh, a militia. So the kind of unofficial <laughs> soldiers of... Um, like all the preachers and the farmers and the... It starts the, like a guerrilla war. Yeah, the people who are ostensibly not soldiers who were obviously, and this is historically true, had a big impact on America's success in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And then the kind of climax of the movie is Tavington killing Gabriel. So two of his sons now have been killed in this war. And he helps lead a kind of final or a, a big battle in South Carolina against Cornwallis's forces. And he inspires the men to win that battle. He kills Tavington. And then we see as time goes on, the Americans win the war because that's yeah. what happened in history. Yes, yes. And it's kind of, I mean, it is. It's the Revolutionary War epic. There isn't really another Revolutionary War movie. And actually, that was a thought I had. It's like, I want to see more movies of this era. True. Like I want to see. I mean, obviously we're we're out the yin yang. That's with actually very world, weird. Yeah, there's we're out the yin yang with World War Two movies, and even now getting a few more World War One movies. And I know that there are some Civil War movies out there, like Gone with the Wind. Isn't that a Civil War? Yeah, movie? and then there's also one with Denzel Washington. I can't remember in the eighties. Anyway, but like, yeah, I was just thinking. I made a note while we were watching. It's like, why aren't there more Revolutionary War movies? I feel like this would be eaten up by. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The American public. That is odd. I so anyway, of that. I guess we can start with Ben. Even though this is like an epic and it's kind of cookie cutter, I found some really interesting things about him that are only like very tangential to his character, but I think are worth talking about. All right. So like at the beginning, we're introduced to him as a nice guy and playful, but he definitely can't make a rocking chair. No, no. He seems <laughs> and, to struggle with uh, the... I think that's kind And a bit of, of a temper because of that. Yeah, I think that's kind of supposed to... Um, He's a he's not a man that's made for peace. No, right? is, is no. kind of like the hint that we're given. Well, right? and he yeah, because he's definitely 
He's like a little fish out of water. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's like he's like a, a an early version of Jeremy Renner in Hurt Locker. Yeah. He, he shows he, up <laughs> in the cereal aisle, doesn't know what to do. He's like, so he goes oh, back man. to Iraq. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here is an interesting line. I, I really, hmm, it seemed topical. It's during the, oh, what would you call that? Like the council or the meeting that they had yep. in, in Charleston. And he shows up and he has a line. An elected group can trample a man as much as a tyrant. Yes. <laughs> and so I just thought about like, this is, this is like a bit of an early critique of populism or majorityism. <laughs> so. Yeah, true. I mean, in a, and- I, I thought that was a weird nuance in a movie that's about the Revolutionary War. Yeah, he seems. I mean, it's interesting because it, they they also like are showing that he was a you know a man of violence, and then he's tried to, to choose a peaceful life, and like the the whole thing begins. I all my life I'd worried that my sins would catch up with me, right? Because he he knows what he's done, and like it's interesting. We talked about this in Fargo, right? Men of war going and living peaceful lives, and I mean, of course, Fargo isn't a peaceful <laughs> life, but trying to reintegrate but obviously having the the psychic scars of what you have to do in war Mm -hmm. and yet he's probably again another great example of what the best response you could have to that Mm -hmm. which is to become a thoughtful self-aware reflective person and obviously he's reflected on the nature of power and the nature of society and the nature of um, tyranny Mm -hmm. and while he doesn't want there to be tyranny, he's like, really, what are we trading? Like, what are we trading this for? Like, yeah. Is it, is, is it a, is what we're asking or what we're hoping to achieve a good in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Or is it, are we just trading masters? It's like that line from Fargo, you know, we're, in America, we don't have kings. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Yes, we, we just do. don't call them that. Sure. Yeah. And that mean Doug, that would suggest that he has a kind of an insight on other forms of human aspiration that can lead to tyranny, right? Not yes. just the monarchy form or the monarchical. <laughs> Never tried to say that word before. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Which is like the most obvious one and the easiest one to sell maybe to the public. It's, it's. I mean, if you think about it, the, and, and I'm not saying that it wasn't correct or, or ethical to do it this way, but it's not a hard sell to like the public of America in 1776 to say, hey, this one man is the reason your life sucks. Right. <laughs> right? Like right. Uh, the king of England is why your life sucks right now. The decisions he's making are, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And put your faith in us as we revolt against this and give you freedom. Now, again, I'm on balance very pro-American in the battle between uh, republicanism and monarchy, right? right? Yeah. Like I would definitely, if I if I were in the war, I would fight for uh, the Americans right. in this conflict. But I thought it was really interesting in a very pro-American movie, obviously because that's the market. Yeah, that there was that little level of nuance, and especially now because we're kind of living in at least media. The media says we're living in a populist world yes. now. Yeah. And there's probably some data to bear that out and certainly some cultural motifs, well, I would say, yeah, also. Yeah, there's definitely signals that and, that's happening. And um, I just thought it was, again, like I, it's an interesting 
insight by Benjamin in the movie to point out that a king isn't the only way you can be stamped on by somebody else. And it, it can be one person with one boot, or it could be a thousand, a thousand people with part of their toe on you, and yet you can still be crippled by that. And that's something you need to... At least, here's the payout, I think, is you at least need to be aware of that if you're going to be willing to go to war, because you're trading a master for a different one, and even if that master is a little bit better, you need to be aware of that, which I think more broadly in the American context is why after the Revolutionary War, how great it was of Madison and Hamilton to come up with the Federalist Papers yes. and to figure yes. out the balance of power. Like, yeah, they're like, we don't want to just, yeah, they, they basically built a system yeah. that hamstrung itself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years, literally, for us to reach a point where it's kind of hit a dead, like where it's become a problem. Or, or at least part of its... It's going to have to flex its muscles the, the the strongest here, yes. Right, like this is this is a boring but important factor in a revolution. Is that yeah, the Declaration of Independence? It's sexy, <laughs> right? Like yeah, fuck you, King George, come get us, yeah, right? All men are created. All men are created. Like it's inspiring. You need that. You need the Declaration of Independence. You need Thomas Paine. You need common sense. You need you need the fire in the hearts of men to revolt to get the change to get to get the change that is necessary but i would say sustainably and long term you need madison and hamilton even more than you need the revolution because otherwise you fucked up the end game yeah right like what's you, the point? you have your revolution i mean we're not historians this seems to me what the French Revolution was missing. I would that, agree that the American I, well, Revolution Burke would, wasn't. Burke would say that that's exactly what happened. Right? Like, right? Um, yes, you need intelligent inspirers. You need your Benjamin Franklins. You need your Jeffersons. You need your you need your charismatic leaders. You need your George Washingtons, but you also need your lawyers. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you need your, you need your like political philosophers and historians to go through and like really get into the weeds of the of the Federalist Papers. Well, and right? look at the past. Like, I mean, America or the American Constitution is kind of mirrored off of the Roman Republic, mm-hmm. right? And the, but it was like, well, look how the Roman Republic failed. Mm-hmm. How do we avoid that from happening? And like, this is something that we just don't. History isn't cool anymore, right? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, if you go in... I think it's cool. <laughs> Everything's coming up history. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but it used to be, I was talking to someone about this just the other night, it used to be that we would teach Latin and Greek in elementary school. Right, like that because, was basic curriculum. Because to understand... Sorry, those curricula. Civil- <laughs> but to, to understand those, ba- those, those foundational civilizations was to understand ourselves. But now we live in a world where the past is prologue, the past is bad, the past mm. should not be thought about. And or shameful. Or, yeah. Or, or, or like yeah, a just, skeleton in the closet exactly. is just our whole history. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a thing to... And... and those people were backwards. We are the enlightened. We are the, you know, and we're doomed to fucking repeat it. Mm-hmm. We're doomed to yeah. repeat it. We're repeating it right now. Well, look at Austria. Look at, look at China. Mm, like yeah. we're sitting here being like, ah, uh, we're, we're doing exactly what Chamberlain did. Right. Exactly what Chamberlain did with Hitler. Mm. Oh yeah. Maybe he has concentration camps, but you know, we're making money off of our Well, I wonder with- if. Corona could be a turning point in I'm hope- the, well, I'm in the West's relationship with China because like, it fucking better be. Well, <laughs> enough is enough. Yeah. Right. Part of it, too, it's not just our governments. It's our culture realizing that 
Canada, United States, the Western world, one of the reasons our shit is so cheap is because it's made in China where they don't have to pay people and they don't have to care about things like safety at work or human rights or et cetera. It's well, like, yeah. So it's like part of that, though, is also it's not just our leaders or our government saying, no, we're not going to do business with you. It's us in Canada being willing to spend more money on shit like clothes yeah. or or anything. Like and maybe anything not just buy. becoming... and. I mean, this goes back to a fundamental economic principle, but the idea that consumerism is actually a, an inherent good, mm. right? The, the, just the buying of things. Yeah. I don't know. I think you and I are very similar in this. We're actually fairly uh, minimalistic. Like, I don't buy a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think you and I have talked about this. The only thing I spend a lot of money on is food. Yeah. Right. And I mean, then, I buy a lot of books. Yeah, but that's and not guitar strings. I think those are those are different. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. You're not buying things for the sake of buying them. Like you buy, re, buy a book so you can read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you buy guitar strings so you can play your guitar, right? <laughs> Turns everything's, out everything's very practical, <laughs> right? Whereas I just don't see that. Well, that's also part of the way we were raised. Like we weren't raised to be consumers. No, that not was at all. that was just not, not the the value system imparted in us, and so like. Bringing us back to the movie, I I think it's a a huge part I got out of this movie from even that one line. I mean, again, it's a movie, so you need the action. I was left with this, like, it's. I feel like I already knew it. I just hadn't articulated before. Is like, the American Revolution, broadly speaking, actually has kind of two parts to it that are super important. There's the beginning Declaration of Independence part, but then there's the Federalist Paper Constitution part. And the first part is the sexy neon lights, uh, rah, 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 we are Americans. Uh, and We win. Which is an attitude I don't dislike. <laughs> I, <laughs> right, I think it, it can be charming in its best forms. But then the, the, the end game, the, okay, we need to figure out how to divide up our legislature. We need to figure out executive. We need to figure out the courts. We need to figure out Congress. We need to, I mean, there's uh, there's some great lines that Madison and Hamilton have about you know, if men were angels, there would be no government. If gov- if uh, government were run by angels, you know, I don't know. I there, can't remember. Yeah, yeah, there would be no need for like it's just balances. it's like um and and obviously, I mean, this would be a, another nerdy point we need to make is that the framers of the American Constitution were 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 very well versed in the kind of empirical and philosophical political philosophers of their day. So John Locke of all the philosophers probably had the most direct influence on the framers of the American Constitution. Uh, he wrote in his treatise on human nature, it is the right of every man to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Yes. <laughs> so Jefferson yes. just played with that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> made the d- <laughs> it's a big difference, oh, though. Yeah. yeah, in the pursuit of happiness. And and so it's like, I guess I don't want to belabor the point, but it's just, of all the major revolutions in history, it seems to me the only one that even still has a chance or has any gas left in the tank or any energy left is the American one, right? Yeah. Like the French one is long gone. No, oh, yeah. We saw what happened because of the Russian Maybe one. Maybe the Iranian one, but it hasn't been around for very long. Yeah. Yes, right. and and um, I bet you if you polled the entirety of the population of Iran, they'd have a slightly different opinion on what they think about their revolution <laughs> yes, yes, than yes. if you polled the entirety of the American population. Although one of the problems is that's changing a little yeah. bit. Yeah, there's a probably now more than ever. It seems to me there's um there'd be a higher number of the population of the United States that is at best looking askance on their own inception. Which, I mean, if you think about it, is exactly what perhaps the enemies of America would want. Like, mm. if, if you're a, a power that wants to weaken your... I mean, you even look at, why would France go and help America? Well, they would well, they they hit the British. Well, that, but they but because they wanted to weaken the British. Right, yeah. Right? So it's, 
once if you can so, so discord in your enemy's ranks, mm-hmm. you've, you've won half the battle. Totally, yeah. No, I mean, this is the Russian plan with the bots. Well, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just, uh, it's funny how it does seem the American population, at least on Facebook and Twitter, are so easily gamed. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's it's like, so sad. Be less trolled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have less I outrage. understand what's happening. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Like, yeah, you need, and, and, and I think that's why. Like, why the American Revolution still has a chance, like the ideals and the perpetuity of it, is because of that, how they cleaned up the end game. Yes. In a way that other revolutions just didn't. Like, any revolution, the problem is, okay, well, what do you do as a reactionary, as a revolutionary, when you are now the status quo? (laughs) Right? Like, that's kind of a position that, you know, Robespierre or Lenin just didn't have a good plan for, it seems to me, right? Like, they, they just... It was all about the revolution, and it's what's so beautiful, I guess, about the best version of the American Revolution is that they kind of did their best to take care of both parts of it. The once we get power, and then how to not become the tyrant once we have it. Which is mind-blowing to think about that that was, the, that was both the goal and the execution of the framers of the Constitution. Yeah, you know, and like, they pulled it off, and right? how and how much disagreement there was between themselves, even, and still they managed to, like, I, I'm just blown away at that. I, it really, really is one of the great philosophic constructions in human history. Totally, absolutely. I think there's a quote from uh, Margaret Thatcher who says, "Europe was created on history, and America was created on philosophy." Yeah, and I, and I think, <laughs> and I think that's the best way to think about it. Yeah, because the United States was the first. And maybe still even the only, certainly the best country that was made intentionally. Yes. (laughs) Right? I can't think of another nation state that was so intentionally made. Like maybe Canada, but even Canada is a little bit like, it's just not feasible now to not be a country. (laughs) Very different, uh, very different foundings on very different principles. Exactly. Right? Now, I guess history will tell us. Yeah. Well, actually, we'll get into the Canada-USA differences because it's just movies like this really pull out... The narrow but deep cultural differences between America and yes. Canada, I think. Yeah. I would just say, like, to close this thought off, one of the most underrated thinkers, people in history, someone to, like, kind of study and look up to, I think is James Madison. Like, this guy who is, you know, like, all the big names, Jefferson, Washington, Franklin, uh, even, like, you know, Sam Adams... John Jay, Patrick Henry, like they all just have their own, Paul Revere, even, even though he wasn't exactly a founding father, he was, you know, they they all have this kind of mythos to them, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I've heard it, America's myth is their founding. And I just, I feel like he's the one guy that is the unsung hero. Of, yeah, the, no of really the American Revolution, much, right? Well, I think he was. The, I think he was the president after Jefferson. So I think he was the fourth president. But no one really talks about him. It's, it's just not. He's not in the big names. No, right? Like he's yeah. a second tier founding father. And I think it was because he was a little bit younger. Like he was in his twenties, kind of, or maybe even early thirties when the revolution happened. Right. So, but he was able to be there for a while after. Which obviously these people were super important to continue the strength and vitality of the point of the American Revolution. Well, and build the foundation, right, yeah. that, that lasted. As so long as I guess I would it would be a recommendation that he should be someone a little bit more studied because I think it's really his fingerprints, especially over the Federalist Papers, that really has given the American sustainable oomph as it goes <laughs> yeah, right, through right, yeah. the histories, right? When we call the American experiment, I think is mostly attributable to him. Like yeah. the ability for the scenario to be in a way that is more or less open to you certainly more than any country ever was before 
Yeah. Right? So that's my little plug for I like that. Madison. I like that. <laughs> it goes to show the power of philosophy and the power mm. of ideas that often we forget. Like yeah. there's a lot of belief now that, you know, ideas don't matter. We can't change things. You know, what's one person in the cosmos? What's one person? And yet, right. and yet if you, uh, there's a great uh, a line that I've been thinking a lot about as above, so below. Mm. And it's kind of this idea of humans at the apex between the size of the atom and the size of the universe. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're in the middle of that. So yeah, not really able to comprehend either. No, maybe we're maybe yeah, the middle, almost the middle children of the universe. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I like that. That's funny. Um, but, but the thing that I like about that is we can look at reality as being tiny and insignificant and meaningless, mm-hmm. or we can look at ourselves as, as these, creatures who are able to through nothing but sheer force of of mental imagination construct nations Mm -hmm. and build monuments and like at one point even the the house you were living in was just the the idea in someone's head Mm -hmm. right and and the roads and everything all of it is just humans projecting their thoughts onto reality Mm -hmm. and so the nation state of america is just a bunch of is a is a group of maybe a hundred people yeah maybe more but not that many more mm-hmm. projecting their ideas onto reality and mm-hmm. and having created a world power mm-hmm. by doing that well and <laughs> i think this is what's so great maybe this is a little more poetic but what i love about the founding of the united states is the idea that the like people like madison and jefferson especially had simultaneously the most pessimistic and the most optimistic take on human nature at the same time right, right? right. like yeah. like the most pessimistic in the sense that okay we've read hobbes we've read locke everyone is going to try and see, like where you wherever you put the power that's where people will try to seize it so our pessimism is going to come is like, we know that's what people are going to do. We're going to assume bad motives already on the part yeah, of people looking for them. And we're going to mitigate their ability to have that kind of power if they get it. Right. right. Like we're not going to, we're not going to depend on the good side of human nature to not go for it. We're just going to assume they're going to do it. <laughs> so that's the pessimistic side. But the optimistic side is something along the lines of, but we're going to put all this work in so that this can be a country where people can pursue their happiness. Yeah. Because that's right. actually something we want for people. And I would put superlatively someone like Thomas Paine in this round. It's like, okay, the idea of the United States is that you can come here or be here. And again, there's all these troubles in history of immigration, et cetera, that is a more perfect union, right? It's not perfect yet. A more perfect, mm. that's the whole point of it. It's this like, okay, try and get land. Try and pursue a life that you want. Try and find your happiness. And our optimism is that like, we know enough about science and human nature and human flourishing and well-being to hope that this is what you can go for without the direct yoke of tyranny beating you down, right? So like, they're aware of the fact that people can seize power and want to be in control, but also just the cruelty of being under the yoke of tyranny is not worth it. Right. It's not worth not trying to make power structures to diffuse that element of human nature because of how much wor- it, it's worth it to fight against. <laughs> how am I trying to say this? 
it's worth making a structure that people can try and find power in and diffusing that power once they get it so that you can protect people who are under the yoke of an unchecked tyranny Yeah, and try and give them a life in a pursuit of happiness, right? Now, that's like the ideal version of the United States. But I'm also saying that I, I think is the idea of the United States because it's articulated in such a manner. Yeah, in, and if, in so if, many if ways. not that, what? There yeah. isn't, right? <laughs> yeah. So... Again, cool level of nuance in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. To pay attention to <laughs> well, that. all that for one line. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The next thing about Ben I wanted to talk about that you alluded to earlier, and I love this because it's um, it's a cool part, is like that whole first like 20, 25 minutes of the movie, he's very reluctant and hesitant to get into the war. If you think about it, like Tavington is the kind of soldier that, in a sense, wants war. Like that's where he flourishes, right? Yes. Like he, he needs brutality he needs the fight whereas benjamin he is talented in war it's probably where he flourishes but he sees what it does and he sees the destruction and he sees who gets involved and the collateral damage like and and so he he's like this kind of like at first i was like well why is he our hero like i think there isn't the revolution it's like rah 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 like yeah patriotism let's go i mean look the name of the movie is the patriot mm -hmm. and i like i think there's a deeper meaning even to the title because obviously we're talking about well ostensibly we're talking about mel gibson and i like him as a patriot because he's not he's the one who fights for the ideals but he doesn't rush in unprepared or without or savvy cost right he's not naive yeah. so you see him like I'm not saying we don't have a just cause. I'm saying I know what happens in war and I'm going to work. He's like, I'm going to avoid violence until it's unavoidable. Well, he's, and he says the line, parents don't get to, to be... The luxury, yeah. What was, what was the line again? It's like, I don't, I don't have, have the, the luxury. I'm a parent. I don't have the luxury of, of principle. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's yeah. like, oof. But you know how I, I think I mentioned once before about how I'm not a pacifist but I feel every other avenue should be exhausted before it comes to violence. Yes. Right? Whereas Tavington, violence is step one. Yeah. I mean, Well, that's the answer. They're a stark contrast. There's obviously a continuum there. But I like that Benjamin is the kind of patriot who wants to find every other avenue before violence. And you notice he only goes to violence when his children are killed. Right? Which yeah. to me would strike as, okay, that's, I have no other option now. <laughs> Well, and probably I wonder if he would have gone to violence if Gabriel had been taken away, maybe. But I think it was when Thomas was killed. Yes, that's exactly. What does it right? It's like, well, Gabriel was in the war, and like that was the choice that he made, and that these are these are the realities of war. Mm -hmm. But when Thomas was killed, it was like, well, you didn't have to do that. And now you've stepped over the line. Yeah, I, I feel like in the context of the movie probably he would have gone and tried to save Gabriel still from the regiment. Yeah. I just don't think he would have killed them as brutally. But yeah, like, I, well, I mean, we're guessing on motives. I, I think he would have, like, he's going to try and not have his son be killed. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. So, yeah. But I think the brutality of that scene came from the fact that Tavington had killed yes. Thomas. And there's an interesting little thing there, too, where, and this is like, ultimately, I think Tavington's, Achilles heel is that he can't not goad on his enemy to the point where the enemy will be a little bit stronger and better. Right. Right. Like he can't let something go because of his attachment to brutality. And if you are that attached to brutality, eventually you're going to find someone as competent as you 
maybe even a little bit better. He'll strike, he'll bite Live back. Live by the sword, die by the <laughs> well, sword. Well, yeah, right? yeah, exactly, right? And, I mean, Tavington could have saved himself a world of hurt if he wasn't so brutal. Yeah. Ultimately. I mean, he thought that that was the way to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. I like the, the general's comment. It's like, it's not just winning the war, it's how you win the war mm-hmm. that people judge you for. Well, and if you think about it like how Ben is working so hard to not have it come to violence, yeah. right? Like, I think that that's the wisdom of the scenario. And and there's a real, to me, there's a big payoff scene in that way of him being when they're attacking that British regiment that has Gabriel, because you see he brings his two younger sons, mm-hmm. Nathan and Samuel, who look like they're about maybe 12 and 10. Like, they help him, right? Like, they help shoot at the British soldiers. And you, you can kind of see the mix of fear but necessity in their faces. And it's like, before this scene, this is exactly what Benjamin knows will happen. It's not just fighting age men who have to suffer through war. No. <laughs> right? No. It's the young sons. It's the 10 and 12-year-olds who are all of a sudden faced with having to be brutal, to having to be killers, and what that can do to them. It's like, part of that wisdom that Ben had when he was at the beginning trying to not go to war not go to violence is like this isn't going to involve only me this is going to involve everyone and the majority of people that we consider innocents <laughs> right yeah. and i'm not going to do that lightly basically right it's like i'm going to take seriously the fact that if we go to be violent it's going to involve everybody like war yeah. war is not a single player war, game war is yeah exactly <laughs> and war doesn't just happen you know on the battlefield and it's not just <laughs> collateral damage is a very trite euphemism for thousands of innocent people dying yes and, and maybe tortured or or utterly destroyed and it's like i loved that little motif going into seeing it the payoff for me is like that his his young sons being so scared right yeah they have to go kill people now like imagine asking a 12 year old to go shoot someone yeah for your own survival <laughs> that's what he's seeing so i i don't know i like that combination of him as the patriot is the person who goes and fights for his country, but only after he's tried everything else. Yeah. Right? And I like that as the idea of a patriot, is you're not just like, you know, banging your chest, USA. You, you know, it's, okay, we know our principles and we will fight for them if we have to, but I don't want it to get there. Yeah. So he, yeah. I guess he could have been a diplomat. Yeah, <laughs> true. But see, but And then additionally, there's the idea of like, He's like the wise man who comes from war as opposed to the fool. No, well, exactly. He learns the right lessons. Mm-hmm. He doesn't become vicious and bitter and, and broken. He becomes, okay, how am I going to rebuild myself after having mm-hmm. you know, done these viscerally violent things? And how am I going to use my experience wisely to help educate people who haven't experienced war what they're asking of each other? Yes. And themselves and their neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it's not, it's maybe not what you think. Yeah, exactly. It's always way worse. So, okay. So maybe this isn't a point we have to spend a lot of time on, but it's interesting. I couldn't help but feel like a lot of this movie in the military and them being in the militia, I really felt was kind of like the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the <laughs> difference between. I mean, and this was a weird change in warfare, right? It was It's the difference between treating war as like a gentleman's sport and total war. Mm. 
Yes. Well, we made comments about like, can you imagine just standing in a field, lining up, up, shoot. Okay, they shoot. Like, you don't even duck with the other guy's shoot. It seems crazy, right? Yeah. Like, um, I mean, in our modern idea of warfare, it's, it's kind of the total war that came from the jungles of the Pacific during... Uh, the invasion of Japan, right, or the, and the island hopping, like the no prisoners, you know, building by building, yeah. and now and now, I mean, Black Hawk Down. We 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 are now in a in a world where that is the only kind of war. Mm, yeah, right? right, like the kind of militia ambushes, guerrilla, guerrilla, surprise your enemies. Mm. You don't meet on the battlefield in the same way, sure, as as they used to. Yeah, and I feel like there's a there's probably an apt comparison here between the Revolutionary War and the Vietnam War because, in a way, the shoe's on the other foot between the two wars, right? Oh, yes. Like you see, you see the militia of America like jumping up out of the grass and shooting the British soldiers, and like you hear the British complaining. <laughs> it's just so funny. It's like there's a few lines where it's basically the British officers saying they're not fighting fair. Yeah, you're <laughs> targeting not, officers. It's not fair what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of whiny almost. It's like you're not playing by the rules of war. It's like well, duh. Yeah. We can't win if we, we play by exactly. the And okay, so the American militia does this for their own independence. And um I mean, I'm again not a historian or an expert, but there's a lot of talk about how what is America doing in a foreign country meddling with their ability to have their own country? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. uh did you what is our own story here? And that was obviously a big point of tension during the Vietnam War. It's like do you not remember why we became a country? How are we doing this to other countries? And I, I do see the war in Vietnam as a pretty big stain on American history. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, it's the Vietnam War is a weird one because all of the wars over that over the Cold War were all just proxy wars, right? Yeah, like yeah, none yeah, of yeah. it was actual actually about where the fighting was actually happening. In the future, that's probably going to be the case too, right? But it should be a lesson that that does matter. Yes, yeah. And uh, and also it's like, you know, it's a lesson in pride and hubris, right? They knew they weren't going to win mm-hmm. early on, and mm-hmm. yet they decided for the sake of American honor that mm-hmm. they had to continue doing it. We can't lose. And in a sense, isn't that kind of what happened with the British? Like, we can't lose our colony. No, I, I, I understand that, but it's like, I don't think it takes... <laughs> much of a satirist to notice the irony in the U.S. militia doing what they did to win the Revolutionary War and seeing what the Viet Cong are doing to win that war. Yeah. No, <laughs> Like, it's no. basically... Well, the... you've been to Vietnam, right? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. I've been to Cambodia. Right, Cambodia. So, right. yeah, the... but I've seen the jungles. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Right? And, and, like, taking advantage, home field advantage, in, uh, and knowing the bounces of yes. the rink, as it were. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> uh, but, like, you read some of the ways that, like, the Viet Cong were demonized in... The war in Vietnam, and and as an outside observer in 2020, looking was like, they just did what your country did. Yeah, there's nothing different to me. In they they believe in their cause. It's they were born there. They, yeah, it's they are occupied home. by a foreign power who is not giving them the kind of world that they seem to want. Uh what's the thing? Like yeah. it, it, it's just um, it feels very hypocritical. Yeah, I guess the Vietnam War feels very hypocritical, and it it came in more starkly when you see the Revolutionary War because you are, there aren't <laughs> one of the funny things about living in a world that's had so much American hegemony 
is that you don't see very many movies or wars where the Amer- America's the underdog. No. <laughs> right? This no. is like the only situation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd have different like elements of Civil War stuff where there's different underdogs. But yeah, like a lot of this movie, America's on the run. <laughs> America's tail's between its legs. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you're the underdog. We're cheering for you. Well, and they probably how easily it is to forget when you're the overdog, I guess. <laughs> yeah, true. So, and I think it is interesting to to shift that mindset, right? And be like, why? Like, how would you feel? It's uh, there's that great song with God on our side, mm, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, maybe he'll stop the next war, right? Because <laughs> really, nobody wins, and there's no good guys and bad guys in war. There's just blood. <laughs> yeah. So. Another thing I loved about Ben was how he was, he's so smart, right? Like he, and so he's able to use Cornwallis's nature and biases against him. Yes. Uh, that scene where he gets all of his, like 18 of his men released by pretending that he has all these officers. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, why that worked, it's not going to even occur to Cornwallis that he's going to be this ballsy. No. <laughs> Just lie no. to him about this situation, right? Again, I mean, we talk about it as a motif for villains. Cornwallis's arrogance and hubris is what Ben uses against him. Well, it's interesting to take advantage this is, this of This is things. also a Mel Gibson trope, right? <laughs> right, like, yes. He's always outwitting the, uh, you know, the other, the opponent. With his, like, kind of... Laid back confident. Yes. Yeah. Like, he, he just inevitably is smarter, but he's also more manly mm-hmm. and, like... It's a very, it's an interesting role that he always plays. Yeah, and I mean, in the narrative, that's kind of what allows Cornwallis to green light Tavington's brutality, mm-hmm. right? Which is which leads to the worst scene of the movie, or the most brutal scene of the movie, where they burn the townspeople in the church. Yeah, that is a that is a hard <laughs> scene to swallow. Oh, very hard. This movie definitely plays with your emotions quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, but I just thought it was so. I I liked that. Ben was able to improve the standing of himself and the people around him by understanding the blind spots of his enemy, you know? Like, that's just such a, a cool insight into really high-level leadership, I guess. Even, yes, is, yes. Um, and really, ca- obviously, caring for his men mm-hmm. and, you know... yeah putting his, himself on the line for them as oh much as yeah yeah exactly like he's prime enemy number one he doesn't have a single prisoner he walks into like it's just the whole thing is so over the top ballsy that it's like no one would assume he was being that way right like it's just like are you crazy <laughs> like no one is gonna assume. well you put someone in that situation <laughs> right and they're gonna be like well, if he's pretending and he does kill those officers, right? Right. That, that looks really bad on me. <laughs> well, you know what it kind of reminds me of? Yeah, that's another thing. We'll right? talk about in a second how both Cornwallis and Tavington are, uh, it seems at least for most of the movie, primarily motivated by like a kind of honor and yeah. reputation versus like actually winning. Yes. This is why my brain makes weird comparisons. When Gibson or when Ben goes in like that, it reminds me of these never tell games I do at work where you like build this facade and the answer is so simple and stupid. So no one thinks that that will be the answer. Right, so I'll be right. like, I know it's a never tell, but I have to, I feel like I have to give an example. I'll do like, okay, there's 17 elephants on the roof, 52 elephants on your head and 6 billion elephants on my elbow. How many elephants do you know? <laughs> no, no. Well, the answer is three. 
Why? Well, it's a stupid never tell, right? Oh. I don't know. Should I tell? Maybe maybe I'll uh I'll I'll let you f- I'll let someone figure it out. But I'll put it to you this way. Okay. The answer to that game is as stupid or slash in this context we're talking about Ben as ballsy as pretending to have 18 right. <laughs> British okay. officers right. having nothing. Like it's it's oh. way lower. Right. The actual answer is way lower than the natural operating system of someone will think that someone who seems rational is doing. Right. So they won't even assume you're doing it. And then the reason why it's genius on Ben's part is that he knows that. Yes. Right? Yes. He knows. Well, it's knowing your enemy and how they think, right? <laughs> how, how are we going to say it? He knows Cornwallis will overestimate him. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yes. he plays to that. He, belie- he believes, or Cornwallis believes. Yeah. And I like how he throws in the details, right? He's yes. Like, and one rather fat colonel who. who Calls me a cheeky bastard. <laughs> Like that, but see that's yeah. that's the part of the genius is that it's those little details that sell it. In another life, Ben could be a salesman. Yes, yes, for <laughs> which sure. is great. But he's got so he's got that ability, but he uses it for like a higher calling, which I think is another thing that just makes him really cool in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Two other things about him. I love this line. He says, I think it's to I can't remember his name. It's the character that Chris Cooper plays, the kind of American high-ranking person mm-hmm. that he's in contact with. He's like. Why do men feel they can justify death? Right. Right? Yeah. Like, what a great philosophical and existential question to be asking in a war. You know? Well, it's also like he's just watched his two of his sons die now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why am I... Like, his revenge, it's not bringing them back. It's not going to have any impact. Maybe it'll make me feel a little bit better, but it won't uh, It won't change mm-hmm. what's happening. You can't pay for death with death kind of thing. Well, and I mean, there's, there's a... There's a deeper insight here too where it seems like because death and tragedy are built into the fabric of existence like people die anyway it's it's kind of like social entropy (laughs) people come to an end yeah so because of this like natural fact it can be tempting i guess to (laughs) behave socially in such a way as well because it's going to happen anyway it doesn't really matter if we hasten it as long as there's something more important to fight for right and i think Ben is bringing a hot knife through butter to this kind of construction of it's like well no why yeah <laughs> and it's interesting because it does seem like the revolutionary war was a war where it was justified at least retrospectively like they couldn't have become a country if they didn't fight a war i think it's more like a, a an insight on how reflectively easy it is for like in a war someone to just bring in platitudes oh it was for a good cause or you know we can't let their memory die it's like why can't we just let the sorrow be its own thing? Yeah. Right? Like, why does it always have to be for something, especially right away? Like, I feel like it's almost an appeal to just letting tragedy and sorrow exist in its own skin for a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way that best case scenario, it's like tactless <laughs> to bring up that it's for a higher principle. No. Yeah, that moment for sure. I I also think it's interesting. This is just a a weird reality that this movie made me think about a lot. People willing to give their life for something. Like to actually die for a cause. Now, I I guess a lot of these people obviously believed in an afterlife. So there's not a... It's not the same degree of... um, 
of starkness and just saying, oh, it's gone. You're done. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's it. You've only got this life. But um, I'm reminded of one of my favorite books, actually, the, the Red Badge of Courage is what it's uh, and it's all about a um, a soldier in a I think it's during the Revolutionary War or the Civil War where he um, he struggles deeply with this idea of fighting and dying and like will I be courageous enough to stand in that line when the time comes or will I run Mm. and I'm just left kind of shocked that there that the 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 human at the human ability to face death in that way and and say well it's it's because I'm I'm doing it because of this and to like so firmly believe that whatever this value that you hold is higher than your own life because I just mm. you don't see that much anymore. <laughs> like, no. where are examples of people who are? I mean, I guess perhaps in in places not as um, comfortable or and luxurious decadent. or and decadent as our own, but like people are terrified of death now in a way I don't. They they weren't in in this context. I think, I, or maybe they <laughs> maybe they were equally scared, but their actions were different. Mm. Well, I mean, in the modern context, our exposure to death is much more rare. Uh, you know in canada yes, yeah it's it's part of the rarity that makes it a little bit scarier i think yeah well, um, we, we kind of and i mean we don't have infant mortality rates like we used to yeah. and we don't have and, and we don't live with our grandparents as they're dying mm-hmm. and so yeah well, i mean ben's wife dies yeah, leaving him with seven yeah. children <laughs> yeah <laughs> so and he marries her sister and, and but like it it's like he's sad throughout the movie but it's like I mean, they don't really make a point of it in the movie, but it's like no one's really surprised. No, no, no. <laughs> no one seems shocked that there's. I mean, there's a lot of single parents in this era, but the divorce rate was basically zero. <laughs> Different reasons, right? right like I right. just think part of that is maybe a historical contingency on. I bet you, if <laughs> if we were living through a virus that was killing one out of every ten people, yeah, it would be terrifying at first. But we would adjust, and I think our relationship with de- to death would change. Yes, in a way that people even know- a little bit has changed now. Eh? Yeah, like not. I don't think because I don't know anyone who's died from it. I don't think no, you do either. But no. but it has changed our our relationship to our lifestyles has yes. changed. Huge, <laughs> obviously in the Middle Ages, not and during wartime, death is just so saturating that I think you human beings are remarkably adaptable. Yes, that's actually yeah. like. In evolutionary terms, that's one of our biggest strengths uh, from a survival perspective. Like, uh, humans have adapted to basically every climate on Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's almost there's no... There's that great uh, show, Human Planet, yes, right? Yeah. I love that. There's almost yeah. no context or situation that humans can't adapt to. So I guess death being <laughs> maybe just more in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and yet Ben being this sophisticated person... That even though it's he knows it's all around, he's like, yeah, but death will make it or war will make it <laughs> that much more around. Yeah, and that's something we kind of can be in control of. And so, why this rhetoric and kind of sophistry around just boilerplate justifying it when it's just sad and it's just what happens? It's like the human need to always have an answer for something right like the most intolerable psychological category is bad thing no reason live on right (laughs) like that's like that's like intolerable yeah yeah. and so it's 
for the war. It's for the cause. And it's like, why can't it just be for my son? Right. Right. Which I mean, and that's the interesting maybe insight. And I've heard this said before by people who I know who've been in war. They say, well, at the end of the day, you end up not doing it for your country. You end up not doing it. You do it for the people that are in the trench with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Or the people that are standing beside you. Yeah. Or, or like you said. And so really, <laughs> there's no um, the thing that theoretical political philosophers in a foxhole. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's interesting because that's really what was being pulled out of this is it wasn't for the, the great cause of America that he became this, you know, legendary warrior. It was for his family. It was mm-hmm. for the yeah. people that mattered to him. Ultimately. Yeah. Although it, it does seem like by the end, he's shifted. Like, I think part of his transformation in the movie from I'm fighting because my child has been killed and I don't want any more of them to be killed. Like, I'm fighting for my family. As he starts to see the brutality of the British, he starts to believe more in the American cause. Right. Right? And he sees, like, I mean, the climax of the movie is him not him revitalizing his ability because he sees the American flag waving. Yeah. Right? And then this other, this I guess this is the last thought I have about Ben. I mean, I don't know if you have some more, but I think it's the, what he says to Tavington right before he kills him. Because the death scene between, the final fight between Ben and Tavington is, he's on the ground, he's on his knees, Tavington's going to cut his head off, and Tavington says to him, I guess we know who is the better man. And it's just great. Somehow, he knows when to duck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. He's, I guess he's uh clairvoyant or something (laughs) he's got eyes in the back of his head because he ducks he turns around and he stabs him with the flagpole basically and he says my sons were better men and there's this motif especially around the american revolutionary war of um sons of the revolution patriot sons kind of thing there's this motif in especially american culture of the sons of the revolution right? right right so i just thought we could maybe riff for a minute or two on that motif like what is what does the sons of the revolution mean? Yeah, because you don't say even though we say founding fathers, <laughs> so fathers do the framework, sons do the revolution. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the interesting thing, right? Is that um, you know it's always the sons that go to war, right? Um, yeah, or they're the ones that watch their parents do that, and I think it changes you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fourth turning that I think I've talked about it a couple times now, but. I think the the events that impact our parents have a huge impact on us, obviously, because because how the events that shape their lives then echo into our own, and so like being a, the son of the revolution is is the echo of the right. revolution, yes, right? Yeah. Um, is the you know the the people that are so shaped by those events are the sons of the revolution, mm, right? Yeah. The perpetrators of the revolution are the, <laughs> are the fathers of confederation, let's say. Sure. But the sons of the revolution... Are the ones on the front lines. Are, yeah, are, and the ones that the, the, the out of those events... Because the events that shape our lives, let's say our 20s shape mm. our lives, right? right in, yeah. a, in a much... Like, they say your personality is shaped in the first five years or whatever of your life. But, like, I think our understanding of the world is shaped by the events that impact us over our 20s, perhaps. Uh, at least for me, I, I feel that way. You don't have wisdom as a 20-year-old. <laughs> like It's, yeah, all, it's no. basically impossible. But you can have it to some degree, I think, as a 30-year-old. Of course, I'm sure there's older people who are like, oh, just wait, you'll, you'll gain so much more. And I, I hope that's true. 
but to be shaped by events. And that's the weird part about our generation is that there weren't that many events, <laughs> right? It, it, the, well, not, history, certainly not like this. History seemingly was taking a nap. Like there wasn't anything up until now. Up until right now. Well, 9-11. Yeah, but, but even, that's even an that is abnormality. Like, and it's a singular event mm-hmm. that is a before and after, but it's not a sustained... Yeah, like, true. Right now, we're, we're probably going through the first major historical event of our lives. Yeah, I mean, certainly one that's taking a, a long period of time, I guess which is not we're accustomed to. <laughs> born at the fall of the Berlin Wall, so that, that yeah. would be the... The last major. Well, that's why it was like called the end of history. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which is both understandable and very foolish. <laughs> at the time. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So I think the children of the revolution are the people who who that the defining historical mm-hmm. fact of their lives. Yeah, and I mean we have an interesting, even thought of that in I think it was like three years ago or four years ago we changed our anthem yes. in Canada from. In all thy sons command into all of our command. Is that what yeah, it is? So, yeah. Or in all of us command. Yeah, in all of us command. And for someone who is uh, <laughs> uh, proudly unwoke, mm-hmm. um, I actually think gender neutral language in official stuff is probably warranted because there's obviously the the attributes of Canada aren't male. No. <laughs> specifically, no. right? Like I, I actually I understand, and I'm, to me, gender-neutral language is something that actually has been very consciousness-raising in terms of better equality. So it's something that I would maybe tend to more side with the liberal side of the divide right, <laughs> on something right, like that. Yeah. That's not the point here. The point is that I think, though, obviously in war and in revolution, it is often very, pro- and it's certainly in the Revolutionary War, it was very specifically male. I mean, most wars are men who go to fight. It's different now, I think. The, it's higher, still mostly, still men, mostly, yeah. but different percentages, and I think attitudes are a little different, at least in like Western militaries around that kind of thing. But anyway, the patriot son, the one who has to go to fight, and I, and I, this is more of a an insight, I guess, on Ben's character is that I love that he is of that type who doesn't take the patriot son for granted in terms of the cause. No. Like he's so vigilantly aware of the value in the sun and in the fighting for that sun. And I mean, if you think about it, what, what would be harder? He sees two of his kids die. Like he sees them. He doesn't see Gabriel die, but he's there like minutes after and he watches his son get shot. So he's, he's around two of his children dying. And like, what could be more, more heart wrenching than that? So his wife and his two children, oldest children die yeah, before he does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like terrible. And he's, um, my sons were better men. And I, I guess it's, um, like, I don't have an answer for the idea of like better valuing people who are fighting for what would be generally considered a just cause as I feel the American revolution was, but I think Ben probably reminds us of of really vitally not forgetting that. Yes. <laughs> that it isn't just, it's not metal soldiers on a board no. <laughs> falling. It's Real people's people. sons who are falling. And I love that little, I, I love that the climax of the movie and him killing Tavington, the guy who killed both of his sons, is recognizing their value. Their value. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's actually like, lastingly that's kind of benjamin martin's impact i think in culture through this movie yes right yeah like the idea of the patriot 
being this much more sophisticated person who's fighting for their country. Yeah, not, not just a blind patriotism. Not, yeah, not the like caricature a... of the pipes and the drums and the USA. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but, but very much a like you know this has been thought out. Mm-hmm. I I really do feel like a lot of the greatness of the American idea is overshadowed by the shallowness of many Americans. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> or Fair. not, I don't want to, like, I don't just, like, any country. Any country that has anything good in its culture or its philosophy is often overshadowed by maybe more thoughtless representatives yeah. of that area, right? Yeah. Like, there are obviously, I've traveled around a lot and I've met a lot of Canadians around the globe where I just, like, facepalm. <laughs> Right, like, you're like, oh, oh. You know I'm going to be associated with you, right? <laughs> Why are you like this? Yeah, people are going to think we're the same. And I, I love that this movie is really spotlighting kind of like the best of the ideas and kind of person. I mean, neither you and I are American, but I've known enough American people in my life where there's, I do see a thread of this, of the Benjamin in kind of like the wisdom of the best form of this reflection of a person who happens to be from America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and really the American ideal is something that's kind of, not kind of, is incredibly rare. And that's that your birth should not determine your life. Mm -hmm. Because throughout human history, one of the things that the aristocracy and the powerful have always done is not be merit-based, mm-hmm. is that it's hereditary, yeah. is that me and mine will rule over you and yours, and that's just the natural order of things, yeah. right? And yeah. America says, no, <laughs> that is not the natural order of things, and that's why it has been so successful. I mean, if you go back to Rome, the, they, they say this. Uh, now, there was an aristocracy in Rome, but the, the reason that Rome was so successful as opposed to its neighbors... Mm was that it encouraged ambition yes, yeah, right. and competition. Yeah. And it was it was this constant, as Dan Carling says, king of the hill, right? Not only did you have to get on top, but then you had to fight off everyone else who was trying to bring you down. Which means you like necessity for innovation. Exactly. You have to become better and stronger and faster and smarter. And in America it's like, well you want to be on top? <laughs> then you're gonna have to you're going to have to be better and smarter and faster and stronger because because even if you get there there's no guarantee you'll stay there and we're not giving it we're not going to give it to you and we're not going to give it to your kids mm-hmm. for sure well that's um that's a nuance that i've heard jordan peterson bring into the 1% debate is that it's not that there isn't a 1% it's that it's constantly changing there's a turn. who's who, yeah. who's in that 1% as opposed to like a more static aristocracy that would have been the case for centuries in europe and, and stuff which is like that. funny because every time you see a socialist regime take control mm-hmm. of a society a kind of aristocracy always develops look at china yeah of course like yeah it's almost entirely run by an aristocracy mm-hmm. what's in a name yeah <laughs> human nature hasn't changed no it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> change with with you know ideological principles people are our people and yeah. power is power. I mean, it's kind of the whole point of a, something like the United States is the emphasis of, of Ben in the final analysis, if you will, is on the individual, yeah. right? It's on his sons. I don't know. There's just a kind of fun cultural motif there of the individual, the sons of the revolution then. Yeah. So like I alluded to earlier, the optimism of the American founding fathers was along the lines of, well, we don't want the boot on the neck 
of the common man or a yeah. common woman, right? Like, I mean, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have cared about women too much at that time, but <laughs> right, more right. than average in the world, right, they would have. Right. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. I like Gabriel's presence in the movie because he he's the one that fixes the flag, right? Like he's mm-hmm. the one that really believes in the principles and the ideas of what they're fighting for. And yet, even when he... so, But there's that scene where he's in power and he doesn't want to kill the men who are surrendering, right? Like, he doesn't want to be the brutality that he's seen the British do. Mm -hmm. And so this is the line that really stays with me, is that we'll have a chance to build a new world. And so, in a sense, it's kind of Gabriel's passion and idealism that's probably also what inspires Ben to be the patriot. Right. Right? And I... Well, and that's why he brings the flag that his son fixed, Mm -hmm. right? And I look at Gabriel as kind of like the best version of an American, let's right, say. Right, Who really believes in the ideas of freedom. And when he comes to power, he doesn't become brutal like the people he's usurping. Right. We have the chance to build a new world. And like, this is the American idea, right? Like, there's yes. the rhetoric around city on the hill or... Manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, which has its own side effect <laughs> problems. But... There, I, I can't remember if it was Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Paine wrote something like we have it in, or maybe Jefferson, we have it in our power to make the world over again, right? Mm-hmm. That was the idea of the American Revolution philosophically. It's like we can make it new and better. Yeah. I mean, even New England, New Jersey, New York, the new world, right? Like this is the American idea. And I love that they portrayed in the movie Gabriel as being that, right? He wasn't always savvy he was a little naive about the war but he was it was clear that he was doing it for those ideas right yes and i loved that i i just loved that portrayal so i don't know take any part of that you want yeah like i mean they call it american optimism right god bless american optimism (laughs) which is completely different than the european general mindset i would say and the canadian mindset it is the belief that kind of anything is possible that is that has driven in a sense has driven mankind itself forward in leaps and bounds beyond where we we thought we could and that didn't just implement the idea of republican democracy they implemented real capitalism to a to a big degree and 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 unleashed the forces of the free market into the world which you think about it and it's a tiny little country with like at at the time not that many people yeah and they were not a global power until world war ii maybe world war one arguably so it's really they haven't even been 
the you know the global superpower for more than a hundred years, and yet what they've brought to the world has has lifted the vast like we're talking billions of people out of poverty. They didn't bring the idea, but they were the experiment, right? And I think when you talk about building a new world, that's what Gabriel's excited about. He's excited about. And as such a, it's it's well done where they at the end they're rebuilding Ben's house. Mm, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's like if we're gonna rebuild the world, we're gonna start with the parts that were destroyed by the the battle to rebuild that world. But when I think about what Gabriel represents on a philosophic level, it's this idea that the change is good, and that if we approach it with the right ideals and principles, and mm-hmm. I like. He says to his dad, like, when I have a family, he says, when you have a family, you'll un-, Ben says to Gabriel, when you have a family, you'll understand. And Gabriel says, when I have a family, I won't hide behind it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And now he's calling his dad a coward. And whether his dad is a coward or not, I think is played out in the movie. It's an important question. Like, mm. are these ideas worth it? <laughs> and I think America sure. says over and over again, yeah. yes. Well, I'm glad you brought up him philosophically because it did remind me of and i share this i think with the kind of general american geist or spirit is the united states really has at least historically and the best versions of it i think has bought into the concept of meliorism right yeah the world can be improved through human effort and i think there's an element of that idea that can be seen as kind of quaint from a European perspective, Mm -hmm. which is so entrenched in history, right? Like the concept of history is just different in Europe or in Asia than it would be in the United States. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like Mm -hmm. American history, it goes back only like, what is it? 200 and almost 250? Well, it depends on when you start it, right? Yeah. Because if you start it with when they arrived, like when the Puritans arrived. Well, okay, but from the revolution. Right. Right? It's like 225 years. And there definitely just would have been more cultural kind of acceptance of your lot. Yes. In the European geist, let's say. right? (laughs) millennia. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that there's a kind of, there's the American can-do-ism that is almost unpalatable to a European taste based on like, who do you think you are? Right? Like you were born into a role. Now, obviously that's kind of bullshit because most of Europe has adopted a more or less like Western Europe has adopted more or less a capitalistic yeah, yeah. <laughs> market-based democratic worldview, which would have been pioneered a lot by England. Sure. But also but America, the United States. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, hypocrisy lingering there in the attitude often from east to west atlantically speaking yes yes (laughs) there is a danger on the american perspective of that though of like being too foolhardy and thinking you can control too much and you know maybe vietnam is an example of that right like it's not like i'm just gonna be pollyanna about america's presence right but gabriel represents oh we can do it we can make the world better. We can find that sliver of human existence that people can control, our social relationships, our legislature, our laws, the rule of law, our government. And we can work incrementally at improving that so that we can pursue our happiness, right? And that idea is so novel 
and so unlikely even in the grand like if you think of how powerful inertia is yes is as a as a physical principle then you apply it to the social and cultural and political world how did this happen yeah like how did we get a country that had such a radically different ethos that has provided so much good in the world <laughs> you know like this is why i'm so grateful i think to this element of the american spirit right is yeah is ameliorism i always have a hard time saying the word ameliorism like the idea that humans lot can be improved through human action as opposed to maybe determinism or something like that and i i just i love gabriel's spirit there and then in like taking care of the flag not wanting to hurt his enemies when they have the upper hand you know like we'll play by we'll we'll try fair play rules yeah, even <laughs> we if, won't even be if brutal. it puts us at a, at a disadvantage. We won't do to you what you would do to us if the roles were reversed. And that's actually what gives us the moral authority to be in charge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's kind of how I view it is, and this isn't a specifically American thing. This is kind of a more enlightenment, democracy. Part of what gives you moral authority to be in charge is you wouldn't do to others what they would do to you if the roles were reversed, mm-hmm. right? Like if you, <laughs> there's a lot of places in the world that if they had the capacity of the United States would treat their neighbors very differently yes. <laughs> than <laughs> often what America does in the world, right? They're, they're quite nice to us. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, and this is maybe controversial, but there's a, there's a great thought experiment that goes on. It's like, Sam Harris talks about, imagine what would happen in Israel-Palestine if Palestine had the Israeli capabilities. Right, right. <laughs> we yeah. would be looking at a very different scenario. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole different can of worms. But. Yeah, that's a big can of worms. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm left with that from Gabriel, is like that actual positive American presence, right? Because like, look, far be it for me to not rag on the dumb parts of America. Right, right. <laughs> But I'm very inspired by the best parts of it, you know? And and that's what I see in Gabriel. And that tension between Gabriel and Ben in the movie, I think, is part of... Well, I mean, Gabriel dies, but so it's sad. But it makes Ben better, right? Yeah. Like, Gabriel's spirit improves Ben's attitude and place in the world. And I do think that so so much is improved by that can-do spiritism that Gabriel represents. Yeah. Another interesting point on that is so often now, it's funny because we think we're so enlightened and wise, but um, so often we allow one... Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, society, you know, where we've progressed beyond our ancestors. Right. But so often we, for, we see things in such stark black and white terms that one sin can erase mm-hmm. all the good that a person does and right. like we like we live in this mob run society where you know if a group of, if enough people call for your head you lose it and yeah. um and maybe while their sins of america are many can we really say that the the things they brought don't pay for that well look i don't think very highly of bill clinton Right. I don't think he was I think he was probably and I'm not an expert, I think he's an okay president and probably a pretty skeezy guy. Right. But I do agree with him when he says everything that's wrong with America can be fixed by everything that's right with America. Right. Like I do believe that. I think yeah. that's a hundred percent true. I think most of America's problems stem from them not 
putting into practice their own stated principles. True. True. Like it's not the principles that are the problem. It's the <laughs> hypocrisy and negligence of them yeah. that breeds so many of the issues. I mean, honestly, and this is kind of a point in this movie we might as well bring up is that, as you know, Hitchens was a big influence on me and he always referred to slavery in America as America's original sin. Well, realistically, the biggest reason Lincoln was able to pass, I think it was the 13th Amendment, the one that ended slavery. Yeah. I think it was the 13th, whichever one it was. The reason he was able to do that is because he was like, like, look, our declaration says all men are created equal. We're not living up to that. Now, I might be romanticizing Lincoln's motives a bit, but like there was already embedded in the American laws or declaration the concept of freedom. And the problem wasn't the American laws it was the way that people were interpreting them yeah or or not living up to their own stated principles right i mean there were obviously some people around the revolution time that wanted to have the end of slavery be in and it's like to america's great sadness that they wouldn't have gotten the carolinas or georgia on board without keeping slavery in Anyway, that's a whole different podcast where america fails is where it doesn't live up to its own ideas I like that. I like that. The <laughs> and, ideas are good. It's the practice. That's that so good. different than saying the ideas are the problem in the first place. Yes. Right? It's only in a democratic Western liberal society that you can have the freedom to complain about the roots of the democratic Western liberal society. Right. Yeah, you're not... <laughs> there, if you are in Iran and you have a problem with the roots of... The revolution. Theocratic yeah. fascism, <laughs> you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. You're in jail dead. If you're in China and you have a problem with the roots of... Uh, communist. communist ideology you're dead yeah right if you're in venezuela and you have the similar problem if you're in i don't know russia where, russia and you have a problem with this weird kind of oligarchic <laughs> yeah. you're gone right if you're in canada or the u.s and you have a problem with the <laughs> liberal democracy based way you're probably a relatively wealthy middle-class commentariat. <laughs> true. Right? True. And that really I could, prove, that I could go the quality cr- of the system. I could go crazy noticing that point. Yes, yes, true. <laughs> we, could, we could, yeah, we could riff on that for a long time. Yeah, so um, it's so funny how you and I being Canadian are ultimately so pro-American in its inception. It's funny because <laughs> I'm not fundamentally i would say oh you don't think america's a good idea no i do i on emotional level don't like america and i think that's a canadian thing oh interesting yeah i think the things that generally <laughs> amuse or bemuse let's say a canadian about america i've developed a an, an ironic relationship with <laughs> and i i think perhaps the optimism that we are praising and it is important I find a little disconcerting. Like, I mean, my ancestors were loyalists, right? So <laughs> they were the ones leaving <laughs> because they still wanted to be under the king. Yeah, I have a bit of a pet hypothesis about on okay, this. Go. One of the things that's so funny, like the, probably the deepest divide between like the Canadian and American kind of cultural spirit is that America is descent, like the, the people of America are descended from revolutionaries. And the people of Canada are descended from loyalists. Yes, yeah, right? exactly. So, so to the extent that there's a genetic factor in yeah. revolution versus, like, Americans 
on balance can be very are much more brash and in your face and extroverted yes. let's say <laughs> right and canadians on balance can be a lot more compliant and obedient and um withdrawn right, <laughs> right right i wouldn't be surprised if there's a genetic component going on that. there considering yeah. that all the people who didn't want to be patriots or yeah yeah uh, went to ontario yeah <laughs> which is where, where and then spread yeah, exactly. from all there and so i am amused a little bit because i actually think i am temperamentally in in this categorization more american, more yeah. american than canadian like i value freedom higher than security yes often I get more I get more annoyed by people doing something for my own good than for like a government not having a warning sign on something that's potentially yes. dangerous, right? Yes, right, for sure. Like in the sense of that trip. So I don't know. That's just yeah. an interesting reflection on the difference between the American and the Canadian spirit. I have admiration for the American spirit. I just think that sometimes it's that whole everything that's wrong with America can be fixed by everything that's right with America. I think some of the things that are wrong aren't being fixed because when you're that blindly optimistic, you can miss things, <laughs> right? Right. And um, history is long. Sure, but don't you think the stuff that is, like, let's say, blind optimism in America can be fixed by actual well-adjusted social critics? I hope so. Right? I hope so. I think, I think that's the question. I wonder right? if perhaps... Part of the modern problem is that culturally, there's just different incentives media-wise. Well, I think Eisenhower... <laughs> to not be a, a well-adjusted social yeah, critic. Well, and I think Eisenhower put it really well, like, and Rome faced this problem as well. What happens when you transition from an idea into a into a military power? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Into, what happens when you go from, you know, the, sh- the shining light on the hill to the police spotlight in everyone's homes? Yeah. <laughs> Right? I don't know. But, and I've always said this, and I think this is, uh, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast or not, but Canada, it's a very weird place to live because we are the suburb of Rome, right? Like the global powers next door, and we're overshadowed all the time. They mm-hmm. call us America's hat. Like <laughs> the Americans don't even really think about us in anything but, oh, they're cute. Like, and yet we kind of, our whole world is Canada, but we watch them. I mean, it's like one of our prime ministers said, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he said, being Canada is like I'm being a mouse in bed with an elephant. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. E- even when they're not trying to hurt you, they can roll over you and kill you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, so like, are you saying maybe the there's a point where the scale of power gets so big that the philosophy can't account for it? That's my fear, mm. I think. Is Interesting. That is that America's become more interested with power. And I think Well, we like s- the leadership of America, you mean? Yeah. Or the cultural attitude. Even. And the cultural attitude. Like it, it the America of the revolution and the America of now Sure. Oh yeah. Are very different. Well, things. yeah. <laughs> right? But I wonder, like if any document has a chance yes. to well, flex its question, muscles right? against us, it's the American Constitution and Bill of so Rights. So let's hope it does. I guess. I, I think it I think it can. I think yeah. um the court system i mean say what you will about the litigiousness of the united states mm, yes it's better than violence yeah and so it still seems like courts can decide disagreements mm-hmm. and and there's still a kind of cultural appetite in the united states to begrudgingly accept a court's decision right, right? right. and so then due process and uh, rule of law 
I mean, <laughs> who knew it'd be the judges and lawyers that save the day <laughs> for right for our civilization? Well, rule of law is probably the greatest invention. I think is the greatest totally. invention of civilization. Well, I mean, from a, from, I think from a political standpoint, the best thing the United States did in its inception is codify Enlightenment ideas into law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I think is their whole like that was that's the American project. Yeah. Right. Is certainly guess, from a political perspective. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I I know we have a few listeners who are American, probably mostly Canadian, but I would, um, I think it'd be so interesting to have an American guest on to talk about just the differences, like what's the same and what's different. Yeah, Canada's, we didn't have to have a revolution, and I don't know if we would. No, <laughs> you we know? probably wouldn't. I don't think we would, but I think, I don't know. It's, it's, I think that there's enough, like it's because we're neighbors, like enough of the culture spills in where, I don't know, like I bet you there's a lot of people in Canada who would, who don't love the government signs warning us of everything. Oh, and especially in our, in our especially province. in Alberta. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. So just a quick note on Anne, Gabriel's wife. I loved her because she's the one who stands up in the church to like, basically call out all the men who won't go fight in the militia who even are though at talking about yeah will you now when you're needed most be only at words yeah <laughs> you know it's like uh yeah that's uh that's the revolution inspiration going on right there hey yeah yeah <laughs> and i just um you know i i, I mean this is the a part of motif of this episode is you just hold people to their claims about their own stances in the world yeah like it doesn't even have to be as grandiose as a, a revolution like it can be a business it can be like oh here's your mission statement i'm suggesting that you follow through on your own stated ideals yeah i think that's like that's where rank hypocrisy hurts the most and can be the most damaging is um like it's kind of really easy to it's easy to know what to do with an enemy who states something opposite to your values and acts on that yeah <laughs> like yeah. that's a little bit of a one-dimensional enemy that can be dangerous but you know where they're coming from but a much more dangerous i don't even know i don't want to say enemy like a a more insidious way of being let down is someone saying something and then not yeah following through right or like rationalizing or justifying is it another? I mean, I guess Thomas Paine is an appropriate person to talk about in this episode. I think it's um, maybe it was Mark Twain who said um, the problem with the world is not that people believe bad things, but people claim to believe things they know aren't so, or something right, like right, that, right? Right. So it's like a Sartre would call it living in bad faith, in some form, right? Mm. Like claiming one thing but not living it about yourself, and like that could be a good philosophical definition for inauthenticity. True. <laughs> right true and and i love that she's pointing that out it's like say what you will about the americans or the american revolution they meant it yeah yeah they, <laughs> they meant were, it they were not they were not just getting overpaid so no. they followed through <laughs> no, right no which is ultimately i think why they won right you can tell well, they, yeah they wanted it more well i mean this is this is a good transition into a, a few comments on the british cornwallis cared about his balls mm-hmm. and like getting Claiming territory. Yes. And winning battles. <laughs> and, win- and, and Tavington won at Ohio and winning yes. battles and getting glory on his name. And he's fighting against people who are fighting for their ideas in their lives, right? It's like, well, duh. Well, and that's the interesting... I like... I love bringing up Rome because the founding fathers loved Rome. I love Rome. And the interesting thing is the three empires. Who's your favorite Roman of all time? Oof. 
Well, I I would have probably said um, like Cicero is pretty great, mm-hmm. and like uh, but Marcus Aurelius is probably my favorite. Yeah, uh, I like the Stoics. Yeah, I'm I'm torn between him and Seneca. I like yeah, Seneca a Seneca's lot too. Seneca's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, but uh, but the 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 history of Rome is so. But you look at the three empires. I really think that there's three mm. Western empires that have done more to shape, certainly more to shape North America than any other, and it's the Roman, the British, and now the American, right? And the thing about the British Empire was that it was still so caught up in ideas of honor and prestige and, like, legacy. And the American Empire didn't... Or the Americans, from their very founding, wanted to escape that. Mm -hmm. They hated that. Like, America was a new world and a new hope for Mm -hmm. people because they'd been trapped for centuries well, and, and uh, yeah, like the, uh, off that point, a lot of the people who went to America originally from England would have, I mean. would have been yeah. generally like misfits. Exactly. Or, or people who didn't fit and in so, into so some. If you want to talk about order. a biological reality, <laughs> yeah. like, right? It's people like, who are probably more disagreeable than average <laughs> and more adventurous and more yeah. willing to risk it all. One of the things I love about, the, about North America that I feel like is really undersold, this is one of the things I say often to political friends of mine, is I say, look, whether you're from the Punjab or the Philippines, whether you're from fleeing communism in China, Eastern Europe, or Venezuela, you did what most humans never do, which is leave everything you know and everyone you know and hit the reset button. And go to a new place. Yeah. And like the bravery and courage to There's do that. There's a huge amount of... like the, the courage of leaving what you know is something that is high... I think severely undervalued in our world because most people never do it Mm -hmm. still to this day most human beings live and die within something like 200 kilometers of where they grew up right well so and you raise a really good point here that might be a bit controversial but i I really think it's important to to flesh out is that another example of america not living up to its own ideas has been sometimes political but mostly a cultural kind of revulsion of immigration yeah. Right, like uh, every generation, there's a new group of people who immigrate to the United States and to Canada. Who the gen- the population living there, are like, why are they coming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of our country, right? But it's that tension between well, and look, I'm not a again, I'm not a Pollyanna about immigration. I think you need to have common sense uh, immigration. But people who want to come to America or Canada to improve their lot because they're fleeing a worse place and they want something better for their lives, this is exactly what the point of these countries are. Well, I mean, I and, and like you said, this. Sta- I mean, well, that's exactly what the Statue of Liberty says. Right. It says, give us your broken, your mm-hmm. tired, your... Like, it doesn't say give us your best, give us your brightest, right? Yeah. It says, give us your <laughs> dregs, right? And we'll make diamonds out of this coal, Yeah, right? and, and so, like, I, I know I've said this before, but it was, like, a really early episode, so I think it's worth reiterating, is that I axiomatically claim that there's no connection between anything racial or ethnic and anything Canadian. The happenstance of people in America, <laughs> its original being white or black, mostly, there weren't a ton of Filipinos. No, no. <laughs> and, and there weren't, but it's like, if you come to Canada, and I'm sure it's this, it, should be, it, is, it should be the same in the United States, this is the point of it. If you come to Canada and you're from the Philippines or you're from Vietnam or you're from, you know, Botswana, it doesn't matter. You come here you become a citizen, you buy into the values, you're as Canadian as I am, right, who was yeah. born in British Columbia. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, and 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 I would I would be interested to talk to anyone from Canada who has a different opinion. Because well, it's definitely, <laughs> I, we know they exist. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so so I, I haven't talked about this in a while, but. But mm. wait, but why is the story of us? Right. Yes. Um, really reflects. Play the hits, David. <laughs> <laughs> really reflects on this, right? On the idea that the reason that people want to feel that way actually is their own insecurity. Mm-hmm. They want a exactly. sense of identity that is unique to them that other people can't have. Because if other people can have it, is it really so so special? Mm-hmm. And then what are they? Right. And you've said this to me, and it's one of my favorite phrases you've ever said to me, is blame is part of our search for meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that on the podcast. Yeah. If blame, it just becomes this, you can easily, any person mm-hmm. can sink into the desire for jersey wearing, like this is my team, these are my people, right. every, us and them mentality. No, There's no enlightened thinking in that. Mm-hmm. There's no higher mind reality mm-hmm. in the obsession with being unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be- because that's actually not what's going to get us anywhere. <laughs> like no, you're little, I'm, I, I get so tired of people's desire to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. And yes. yet, and yet, and yet, the freedom of association and things like that, the freedom to believe is so important too. Because on the flip side mm. there is the or the 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 tyranny of the majority well yeah but that okay so but i think there's an easy answer there that is not dissonant or hypocritical is that you can publicly and politically be for freedom of association and freedom of conscience mm-hmm. because that's actually the scaffolding that allows you to then go culturally critique those people right because it gives you the same right oh i like that to, yeah. to critique them as it does for them to associate right right so obviously the public political bridge or scaffolding needs to be there for everyone yeah and it because it's the very same mechanism that allows someone like you and me to go talk to those people and say look Here's why I think you're wrong. I like that. Right? That's a really good way of so putting it. So it's a it, yeah. it's like a meta structure. Yeah. And th- and that's what the founders knew. We have to build in these meta structures which allow for the moral authority for us to govern. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So like <laughs> I remember um this is a little cute little insight but I, I don't know if you ever heard of this guy David Brin. He's a writer. He's a he's writes mostly sci-fi but he's also written a few kind of like social philosophical mm-hmm. things and and he was saying like look, talking about free speech. Like yes, we have to defend free speech, but isn't it a little bit like exhausting that we're always defending it for the Nazis and for like <laughs> yes, the right, like most right. hateful people in our societies. Every now and again, we need something from free speech. <laughs> like, right, we need right. it to give us something. <laughs> and part of like the inspiration of well-adjusted social critics is to use free speech to give something back valuable to the culture. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's being able to critique the small minded insecurities. That's what it gives back. That to gives us. back. And I so like, like that. that's um that's a really good idea. So so like yes, it can be exhausting to just always be like, yeah, free speech for yeah. the fucking swastika wearing assholes. <laughs> or for the, you know, social justice warrior. <laughs> exactly. Or, yeah. 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 And so I just think that that's um, a useful insight. Yeah, is like, like it's inspiring too to think like, okay, well, let's. That's do- the framework upon which we can actually make the yeah. make the creek saying exclusivity for based on anything mm-hmm. is actually dangerous. Yeah, I mean, without the freedoms of association and speech, you won't have you know the crazy Americans doing shitty things. But without it, you also won't have the Gabriels and the Bens. No, that's the calculus that the founders values made. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, we're going to put up with the shittiness so that we can get the gold. Yeah. Because it's worth it. So that's just like an interesting, <laughs> all of that in the in the British. But yeah, I mean, I, I think even though that they're like in the movie and they're funny, both Tavington and Cornwallis are very one-dimensional. Yeah, they uh, don't actually, yeah, I don't like that. I mean- that's but that's such a trope of the of this of the like sweeping epic mm-hmm. right is is there's there's a clear like the heroes are interesting and complex and mm-hmm. the bad guys are flat and and less the one dimensionality of Cornwallis was at least believable in the sense that like yeah okay he's part of um the British aristocracy or the military aristocracy so it's not like I didn't think these would be his motivations it's just um he lacked an imagination to me to be a good leader right yeah. <laughs> and Tavington well, he was one of the people obviously well, I mean he talks about coming from a good family mm-hmm. I mean he's and this is something I learned because I was over in England last summer just seeing class in a way that doesn't exist in our world. Right, yeah, yeah. And people are ashamed of, not ashamed of their wealth, but they hide it more here, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, well, I don't want everyone to think that I'm, you know, that, that I that I think I'm better than them necessarily. Do you mean here in Canada? In or North America. Well, in Canada and the United States, right? In Canada, really mm-hmm. big, like, people of wealth Yeah, it really seems to me don't. there's a there's an element of Americanism that doesn't mind showing off their wealth yeah but it's a lot less than the americans i think but that that wealth that wealth is is earned right usually Mm. is the idea whether it's true or not yeah whereas in it's inherited Mm -hmm. i mean we've talked about this before but in in the uk you can't even be a part of the upper class even if you become wealthy Mm -hmm. because you have to kind of you have to clean your money quote unquote right? right well okay yeah i would make i would draw another distinction here that would hopefully be useful philosophically is that if you are disagreeing with someone of what earning means did you earn this much did you earn this much like what could earn mean you're still playing a good faith game with someone who you can disagree with but live with right this is very different than saying someone like people can't earn anything it's pure exploitation yes, yeah, yeah, like then true. you're in a different game no and i, and I think the uk <laughs> has as i mean my favorite um empire quote unquote is the british empire oh okay because i think that if you look at the the descendants of the British Empire, let's call it India, right. Canada, mm-hmm. Australia, yeah, uh, the United States. So much of the the best that the world has to offer mm-hmm. comes from the British, the, the parliamentary system. Yeah, they were the ones that the common democracy, law. common law, common right. law didn't even really exist in Rome. Well, and they gave a. I mean. <laughs> Uh, the irony of history is that the American Revolution could only have happened because it was people descended from England. Yeah, well, exactly. You couldn't have <laughs> an American Revolution without the Magna Carta. there was like 1688. There was a revolution in England. The, the was it Cromwell? Uh, yeah, Cromwell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's like they had a precedent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, you could only have America as a descendant from Britain because oh, the thoughtfulness of the approach to it mm-hmm. and actually... Their revolution was so so rational and not the passions of. Well, the we masses. have natural experiments you, to compare them to. Yeah, you don't get Napoleon from the American no. Revolution. Well, right? I mean, there were at least three other major European powers that had colonies in the New World that didn't have anything like nothing a positive, yeah. like Brazil and <laughs> all the Spanish-speaking parts of South yeah. America and the French parts didn't. No, you know. So because they didn't have yeah so so they didn't it's have funny the embedded that the, philosophy. the British are always the bad guys I mean funnily enough because I mean they were 
in a number of situations. And I understand the modern critique of Empire Mm -hmm. and the oppression. I mean, of course, that's all Marxist shit, right? (laughs) Which is that it's all about power. and Mm -hmm. But there were bad things. Well, there are bad things happening right now. Well, the reality is, is that just because you come from a, a moral and just civilization doesn't mean every individual is going to be moral and just in it. Well, and there is <laughs> going to be any any system of hierarchy, which mm-hmm. is all systems, yeah. will have those who benefit and those who don't, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And my biggest critique of the British system is what we talked about earlier, is that it, it doesn't allow for merit to be the thing that... Um, mm-hmm that raises people up mm-hmm. it is birth and yeah. position well, and i think that there's an interesting modern conversation to have about how what what is the state of meritocracy in north america yes because i actually think that's something that's weakening it oh, does it does seem to me like nepotism is, is coming probably back and, the number one topic of conversation among my friends and i is what's happening to canada and right. is it even worth living in anymore sometimes because we are moving very, very mm. far away from that. And and one of the reasons I love Alberta is that it was people hate Alberta mm-hmm. because you could have a high school education and become wealthy. Yeah. Right? Quickly. <laughs> yeah, right. And that is a is is disgusting to the elites of the world. Sure. Right? Yeah. Because they don't actually the rhetoric is always about the common person. And mm. like oh, but it is always used to keep people from rising right 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 <laughs> well maybe to put a bow on this thought i'm trying to i'm going to connect your idea of the british empire to what i'm talking about of the necessary other side of the coin of immigration which is you come from anywhere you're canadian if you take the oath you become a citizen you're just as canadian as me but it comes with a few not many but it comes with a few rules which are like the values right so it's like if it's your culture to hate your wife and you come here and you become Canadian, sorry, can't yeah, do that anymore. Do that, That's yeah. too bad. If there are values embedded in your ideas and they're in zero-sum tension with Canada, sorry, Canada wins. Yeah, Like, you don't yeah. get that here. And I think it's well encapsulated in a, in a little anecdote about, I can't remember his name, but there's this really great story about um, when the British were first kind of around in India. And you'll notice as an aside, and this doesn't make the news a lot, there are a lot of people from India or Indian descent who are very happy the British came. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And a lot of the things and cultural norms that they brought and law. So there's this ancient or cultural practice in India, Suti, where if a man dies, they burn his widow alive with him at the funeral. Right. And when the British found out about this practice, they were obviously abhorred by it. And they're <laughs> like, well, sorry, we're not going to let you do that. And, you know, there'd obviously be the kind of thoughtless, mindless modern people who think the British are the bad people in this yeah. scenario. Yeah. And I just love this line of confidence in your own values and the justness of your own cause. There was this one kind of like British officer who was being patronized by a lot of the um, kind of Indian local leaders, right? Who's like, no, you don't understand. This is very important to our culture. In our culture, the widow gets burned alive. That's just what we do. That's part of our, that's just a part of our cultural practices. Mm. He's like, okay, that's fine. In my culture, we hang men from the neck till dead if they kill their women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So if we're going to play that game, well, that, then, in our culture, if you do something <laughs> abhorrent to the morals and values that we are continually wrestling with, but then codify in law, here's your punishment. And that's what happens in this culture. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like, I think one of the saddest parts of 
modern life in, in, in Canada, USA, North America is that because we've become so much more aware and properly so of some of the things we're doing so poorly, we're just throwing out all the things that we've done well as well. Well, that's you know? what I mean by that. What I was saying earlier is, is do our sins wipe out all of our, of all of our, our acts of, of kindness and goodness and, and, right, yeah. and our commitments to justice, right? Mm-hmm. Does, is all of that wiped away? Well, you know, what's interesting is that's exactly what someone would want to happen. Mm-hmm. Were they trying to weaken us? And you can see it as clear as day, you can go on YouTube and watch former KGB members explain how they would destabilize an <laughs> yes. enemy and then look at our society and be like, that's literally what they're doing. Well, that's why I think exactly it's important. This is a perfect time for a renaissance in the political philosophy. Yes. Like this is exactly why this is a good time to read the Federalist Papers again. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like this idea of the valuing tolerance and diversity in its more like vibrant form, not the kind of mealy mouthed modern buzzword form of it. That's why people came to America was diversity. They wanted yeah. to be able to have the form of Christianity that they wanted to have without being persecuted yeah. for without it. Without right? being killed, yeah. And it's a renaissance for the Ben and Gabriel temperament again. Yeah. Of standing up to the people who would be wanting to take down our cultures from within, but not going with minimum necessary force to stand up for the ideas that have made our countries good in the first place. Yeah. And none of that means we don't acknowledge the terrible sins, no, right? But we can't allow that acknowledgement to to just... Because what seems to happen when people are like, well, I acknowledge that, mm-hmm. is that they then hate the whole thing. Of course. But like, again, that's the person who lacks the nuance Ben has in this movie. Yeah. Right? So it's like, <laughs> I mean, we're just hitting all the hot topics now so we might as well not miss any like when i hear anecdotes and stories about the residential school history in canada i'm my heart is broken like that was such a terrible era of canada's history and the fact that it was perpetrated by the government and people knew about it kids taken from their parents to go get re-educated essentially yeah. that shit is horrible cultural but genocide what what that says to me is that just because you have a good system doesn't mean you have a perfect one and it just takes more work and it doesn't mean dismantling the whole system yeah and that's the nuance i hope well-adjusted social critics can bring yeah <laughs> to a scenario I mean, that's the harder work it's easier to just rant and rave and condemn but the whole inception of the united states is a nod to doing more harder work for a better thing yeah right yeah. like it's harder it was <laughs> it's a lot harder to make a balance of power constitution after beating the British. Like, yeah. why wouldn't the founding fathers just figure out how to become the tyrants? Yeah. Right? Well, didn't why they wouldn't ask George... Washington to be president but, for life? Well, yeah, yeah. Like, they, yeah. And he said no. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that was lucky. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That but, was good. like, we have precedents in history of something that worked harder for something better. And it's worth remembering as, you know, you get hit on everything but it's like it is hard work which means you have to be more prepared you have to know your facts i guess which i certainly can't claim to be (laughs) always knowing of so anyway final point on tavington slash gabriel because it's interesting i think is that it's just a wisdom piece is that gabriel dies because he doesn't do his due diligence with tavington and tavington dies because he doesn't do his due diligence on ben right right they both die because they think they have the upper hand and they let their guard down even for a second yes so as a motif it's stay the course all the way through like if you're going to do a zombie land always double tap yeah (laughs) yeah right gabriel 
had him shot, he should have shot him again. He shouldn't have just gone up to, he should have like at least stabbed him from a, like due diligence is so crucial because the risk is so high. Yes. Right? Yes. And I loved though that Tavington being the brutal person is still someone who couldn't learn from that. Right? Like Mm. he's so tunnel vision focused and he's so good at what he does, but he's just not quite specialized enough to be good when it's not that thing. Right? Yeah. And it blindsided him. So funny insight. I think I mentioned the scene where the the British soldiers just charge into Charlotte's house. And it's like, well, this is what happens if you don't have a bill of rights. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You said that. Yeah. (laughs) We're watching it. Yeah. uh, The might makes right wins all the time. (laughs) And who wants to live like that? Only the mighty. (laughs) Just to finish up, I I made a few era specific notes, which I thought were fun or worth commenting on. Uh, We even talked about this when we're watching. So when they had to meet to convene, they had to send a telegram like a month before. Yeah. So we were just like reminiscing on what a different pace of life it is. Oh, so it's different. It's like, oh my gosh, we have to have an emergency meeting. Schedule it. Mm, can we get it in three weeks from now? <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> like, got to come. Yeah. Like, I got to go to Charleston. Emergency meeting. It's in a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just like, that's so mind blowing. Hey, where. I feel like you would get if our so webpage, much more time to think. If our web pages don't load in two seconds, we're pissed off. Yeah. If our, whatever we order on Amazon doesn't show up in two or three days we're like um yeah yeah exactly at that meeting south carolina does ratify to join the colonialists fighting against the continental army right they vote to join once it's announced and there's people shooting their guns in the air and being loud i was like this is early americanism hey yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just the the row right? the rowdy public square oh man <laughs> they are yes yeah, like true. you just see the seeds of of where america has come i thought it was interesting to see american england fighting yeah, considering they're like about as strong of allies as you could <laughs> you get. Ever, yeah, well, it probably helps that they you know saved them from the from the Germans. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, now, nah, but yeah. it's just like um, history is such a great lesson because it's so free, basically. Yes. Like it costs no money to learn from history. Like the greatest enemy used to be the British, and now it's their biggest ally. Well, okay, yeah. What does that tell <laughs> you? Figure it out, world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like you can, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, on a long enough timeline all of history is irony i guess (laughs) i think i mentioned this before i would love a revolutionary era movie that is like a little less cheesy at parts there's some parts of the patriot that are a little cheesy Well, even the cannonball rolling and just taking people's legs off yeah and like maybe one around the declaration of independence like a kind of like political thriller around making the declaration of independence happen yeah because i don't actually know the history of like the disagreement like what would count what goes in and obviously you'd have to do it really well because it's like (laughs) america's jesus if you will yeah (laughs) yeah true but i'd love to see who would be a good jefferson because he'd have to be the main character maybe uh, a daniel day lewis yeah he's a bit too old for that though because jefferson was like our age right when he drafted (laughs) the declaration of independence like isn't that hard to imagine it is so i guess it'd have to be like a like a miles teller Or Jonah Hill. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Michael Sarah. That's his breakout serious role. (laughs) Jefferson. Yeah. I don't know. I just would love that movie. Yeah. So, Hollywood, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I found a little bit unrealistic about this movie is how quickly uh, the white people glossed over (laughs) their relationship with the slaves. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I think that that was very much a um, a Hollywood nod to reconciliation perhaps i hope so i mean the scene where the one guy who's been a bigot throughout the whole movie says i'm glad i'm honored i was like really you're gonna have that change of heart 
But but that I could quick. see that serving beside someone for all that time, you know. I don't know. Yeah, but we didn't we didn't get like much intermediate. No. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> I feel I felt I've it, definitely felt that way. It was like it, it felt ham-fisted. Yeah, it's like Hollywood feel goodery. Yes, exactly. At, at that scene. Um And then I just would I guess finish on um what do you think it is of that era and the the flutes and the drums? Like what was it? What is the the pipe flute or I don't know if there were pipes or flutes and the drums and like you just think of like Yankee Doodle or right. like those kind of songs like was it is it just to keep people in line when they march is it keep well, the spirits drum up? is the drum is definitely so people march at the same and like rhythm you know, and the, tempo yeah, yeah. I know how to move I thought and it was like, cool. You could I like sound liked... the retreats, like with the drums and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I've forgotten. You know what? I, what I really appreciated about this movie is I've forgotten mm. my love of this time period. Okay. Uh, so that was cool to have that be reminded because I've just finished my kind of, I guess, in my rare free time mm. on my little Rome kick. Right. Dan Carlin has that great podcast, so I listened to all of it. Sure. Yeah. But now I'm like, what? What next? And I think, I mean, my mom read me a lot of books about mm-hmm. the Revolutionary War and the, the founding of America and those principles. That was very much my my youth. So for the flutes and the drums, um, I think that was just a, you know, a cultural... Touchstone. Touchstone. That's how it was done. That was the music of the era. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah, yeah and it was... I don't know. Like I, and the thing I enjoyed about, it. Yeah. The thing about drums, right, is they're easy to make. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like the drumming, that's not unique to the American Revolutionary War, but I feel like the flutes were... Or the or the pipe. I don't even know what instrument it was. It was a right. pipe. I think it is a flute. Yeah, is it flute? Yeah. And it, but it's because it's like you're. I guess it was just like to keep people's spirits up. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But it was fun. So anyway, um, I really enjoyed rewatching this movie. Been a long time, probably at least ten years. It is very Hollywood, but for a movie called The Patriot, I found it to be less raw, raw. We're America, fuck you, than a lot of other movies are. <laughs> yes i found it to be slightly more nuanced and thoughtful and i was in, i appreciated that yeah because it's definitely not stuff i would have picked up on i see it in the same vein as gladiator for sure okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely well they came totally the different same year. story but yeah i'll just reiterate my favorite part of the movie is that the idea of the patriot isn't the one-dimensional patriot it's the thoughtful sophisticated reflective patriot yes which i think is the right form of the word for it being used justifiably right yeah so, I don't know. You have any finishing thoughts? I think maybe America needs to remember why it became great. <laughs> I'm a big believer in the idea that um, culture is, or that politics is downstream from culture. That's and undoubtedly I think, true. I think our, our cultural milieu in the States right now asks an inevitable observer of America, as Canadians are. Mm-hmm. My, I guess my comment would be, you're allowing your enemies to divide you. Yeah. And that's destroying the thing that you've built. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's time to remember why you built it in the first place. <laughs> do you ever, um, do you see the picture of that shirt? It just reminded me of um, someone at a Trump rally a couple of years ago. He said, I'd rather trust a Russian than a Democrat. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, okay. What? Why do you think this is happening? Like, this is what... What really baffles me yeah. about this whole thing is you look at the other and you hate them so much. Mm-hmm. And like, Kibono. Yeah, totally, Kibono. But just like also like 
kind of having a better normative operating system of the difference with someone who has a good faith disagreement with you and someone who thinks that your entire country is a bad idea in the first place. Right. And <laughs> who benefits from the fall of America? Not yeah. America. No. No, certainly not. <laughs> oh, well. I thought we did our part. We, we said our thing. Two Canadians talk about all the problems of America. <laughs> Aren't you join excited us, to listen? Join us next time. <laughs> yeah. For talking about revenge. <laughs> anyway, very enjoyable movie. Glad to watch it again. Um, it's been another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And may the force be with you. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>